Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Levi Lika. <clears throat> My pronouns are they, them, and I'm the officiant today standing in for Karen Schofield Lika, who is recovering from an injury and unable to be here today. We are here again for hybrid platform. Whether you are on Zoom, here in the hall today, or watching or listening the recording later, welcome to everyone. We are one community unified across time and space as we gather to affirm our values and commit to a better world. If you are on Zoom, please check the chat for tips like how to use closed captioning and a welcome from today's Zoom chat usher. The chat will stay open through much of the platform service, closing for the address itself and then reopening. I will read greetings from today's attendees in just a few moments. In-person visitors, please stop by the welcome table after platform today to speak to a greeter or to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas. And we invite you to send him an email at maceot@ethicalsociety.org. If you are a visitor watching this recording later, this is an invitation for you as well. You can fill out a connection form as well at tiny.csli/westconnects. I will now read a few greetings that folks have written in the chat. Online friends, while I'm doing that, you might want to get a candle to light during our candle lighting. Lynn Gilbert says, hi, from Austin, Texas Society. Lynn. Paul Absher says, hi, from Patty and Paul. Martin, Martin Coffin says, good morning, good karma to you and Karen. If you, not that way, you can take a seat. <laughs> Thank you for your readiness. <laughs> it is good to connect and share this time together. Once you are prepared, I invite you to settle in wherever you are as we continue to gather. Today's opening words this morning are adapted by Karen Scofielica from a poem by Erica A. Hewitt, UUA Minister of Worship Arts, in turn based on a pastoral letter written by Reverend Susan Frederick Gray in the opening days of her term as former president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. No one is outside the circle of love. We know that hurt moves through the world, perpetrated by action, inaction, and indifference. Our values call us to live in the reality of heartbreak in our world, remembering that no one is outside the circle of love. We not only affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person, we also affirm the inherent wholeness of every being despite apparent brokenness. No one is a stranger to pain or the knowledge that things break or break down. Promises, friendships, sobriety, hope, communication. This breaking happens because our human hearts and our very institutions are frail and imperfect. We make mistakes, life is messy, brokenness happens. We are intimately acquainted with brokenness, then even as we believe that no matter how fractured we are or once were, we can make whole people of ourselves. Because we are whole at our core, paying attention to someone is an act of love. Witnessing and naming brokenness is how we begin to heal it. 
Healing begins when we examine what's in pain, wonder how it occurred, and allow it to teach us. In fact, sometimes the brokenness is immense, and the only power we have over that large and complicated pain looming over us is to bear witness, to tell its story, and to seek out companions and helpers who are willing to agree that yes, there is something broken or messy in front of us. And we will not leave or even look away until repair begins. Our opening song today is performed by guest musicians Gar O'Donnell and Ella Ryan. Yes, of course. <laughs> Two, three. <laughs> Trying to tell you something about my life Maybe give me insight between black and white And the best thing you've ever done for me Is to help me take my life less seriously It's only life after all But darkness has a hunger that's insatiable and loudness has a call, it's hard to hear. Well, I wrap my fears around it like a blanket. And I sail my ship of safety till I sank. I'm crawling on your shore. Right. 
Welcome once again. Each week, we read our statement of purpose as a reminder of our shared values. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc readsop Today's reader is Wayne Nelliston. Wayne and his wife, Johnny Sarles, joined Wes in the early 90s when they started thinking about having a family. Although they spent many years overseas in multiple countries where Wayne served as a foreign service officer with the United States Agency for International Development, they maintained their membership at INWES. Since Wayne retired in 2018, both he and Johnny have been members of the West pastoral team, the transportation team supporting the Afghan family, and the aging with intention group. I have to get untangled first. <clears throat> the Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community, <clears throat> children and adults, as we work for a world where love and justice crosses all borders. As Wayne lights our community candle, I invite those of you with candles at home to light yours and for everyone to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Let's now enter into the centering time of our platform. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of the recent launch of the 988 National Hotline for Mental Health Crises Support and Counseling. I also note that July this past month was BIPOC Mental Health Month to recognize the mental health experiences and struggles unique to Black, Indigenous, and people of color in North America. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us open our hearts to compassion for those who suffer. And let us commit ourselves to the work that calls for our love. I invite you now into a time of quiet reflection, shaped by words from John Wellwood and Morgan Harper Nichols. 
To begin, I recommend that you make yourselves comfortable, relax your body, and focus on your breath. Open your heart to who you are right now, not who you would like to be, not the saint you're striving to become, but the being right here before you, inside you, around you, all of you is holy. You're already more or less than whatever you are, whatever you can know. Breathe out, look in, let go. You are free to slow down. You are free to breathe and rest, no matter the things not sorted out. There might be some mystery here and there might be longing, wondering, and waiting. But there will also be boundless peace that goes beyond, beyond any understanding. Running wild like a river through everything, no matter how heavy these moments feel. So rest easy when everything is approaching. Tomorrow is surely coming. But in the hours in between, you are free to rest till then. Let us relish in this quiet moment to attend to our breath, embrace stillness, and enjoy the music that follows. to spring, summer, or fall. 
sky above you grows dark and full of clouds that oh north wind begins to Our reading today is an excerpt from It's Time to Decolonize the Decolonization Movement by Ijeoma Ndomim Opara, MD. We cannot decolonize global health using the same logics, dynamics, and paradigms that birthed it in the first place. We cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Unfortunately, many decolonization scholars and advocates, especially in academia, are shackled into inaction as the only tools at their disposal are the same tools of colonialism, the same system into which we have all been baptized. Dr. Opara offers five courses of action, including the following. We must emphasize a critical analysis of power. Power is fundamental to colonialism, neocolonialism, and coloniality. Critical introspection as to how individuals, as part of institutions, as well as the institutions themselves, produce, reproduce, maintain, and benefit from the work from intersectional systems of oppression within a colonial framework is necessary for decolonization to be realized. What this means is that Euro-American Euro people and the systems they represent and uphold need to divest from power hoarding and lean out of power and privilege to allow indigenous and majority world people to thrive. While formerly colonized and neo-colonized lead, the former colonizers and neo-colonizers need to actively dismantle the structures of oppression they created. Created, inherited, maintain, and from which they benefit. This, not, this is not a light proposition, as it will require colonizers to divest from the very definition of themselves. As their identities are constructed on the basis of dominance acquired through bloody violence, rape, genocide, enslavement, all to concentrate power and resources. To divest from an identity that sits at the intersection of coloniality and whiteness will require a fundamental existential shift into consciousness 
imagination, decision-making, and politics that sets the colonizer free from the bondage of the addiction to power and the lies constructed to preserve the unearned position of power in the social hierarchical house of cards. The challenge would be the novel act of creating an identity, independence of dominance and oppression. Our platform address today will include a conversation between recovering physician and therapist, John Dakin, who will be joined by mental health advocate, Rachel Collum Whitman, to explore the challenging topic of mental illness. Dr. Rachel Collum Whitman is an educator and advocate and writer who's been shacked up with bipolar disorder since 2000. Rachel is a disability studies professor who teaches courses on unpacking ableism and her speeches, interviews, and writings on the topic have garnered acclaim locally in her hometown of Pittsburgh, PA, across the United States and, international, and internationally. Rachel is also a member of Instability in Six Colors, a memoir, sorry, is an author of Instability in Six Colors, a memoir which paints a vivid picture of what it is like living with a chronic mental illness, trauma, and complicated relationship with sanity, safety, and self-love. Rachel's mission and passion is to create a safe learning is to create safe learning communities to empower individuals to look beyond their illness to find themselves. For more of her work, please be sure to check out Rachel's website, cbrightness.com. John Dakin has been a West member for nearly 25 years. He is a psychiatrist and centers collaboration and partnership with colleagues and patients as a founder and practitioner of Polaris, a purpose-driven organization dedicated to the delivery of high-quality mental health services to all members of the diverse community of Silver Spring, Maryland and its surroundings. Good morning. Let me start by calling attention to the fact that the land beneath our feet was taken from others. West is located on the unceded ancestral land of the Anacostan people. I invite us all to acknowledge this legacy, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who continue to make this region their home. I come to you today to share some of my own critical introspection in the words of Dr. Opara. I will briefly describe my training in the colonialism of the US healthcare system. I'll then describe my ongoing unfinished work to create something better, aided by the people I serve. Rachel will join us by video and you'll see her educate me some more. And then I'll conclude with some suggestions to help all of us receive the healthcare we need. I proposed this platform theme to Lynn back in May, galvanized by the experience of one of my clients who has given me permission to share her story with you today. She came to me back in January, suffering from a significant medical condition, but having a great difficulty engaging with doctors. In time, I learned why. 
20 years earlier, while carrying her infant son in her arms, she slipped on ice and fell hard on her left side. She developed persistent pelvic pain and sought medical attention. She was told the pain was gynecological in origin, despite her attempt to point out that the pain was mostly off to one side. She was referred to a gynecologist who diagnosed the pain as endometriosis and treated it as such. After many months without relief, gynecologists moved on to a surgical solution, removing her uterus, fallopian tubes, and ovaries. For a few months afterward, the pain subsided, but then it gradually returned. After another two years of chronic pain in the same area, she demanded a more in-depth workup. Only at this point, four years after her fall, was she sent for a pelvic x-ray, which revealed a dislocated pelvic bone. Orthopedic surgery addressed the medical problem, but a deeper wound has persisted to this day. In the three months since she took the risk to share this history with me, she and I have worked together to address what she is coming to recognize as a trauma perpetuated by the medical establishment itself. As a physician, helping her recover requires me to acknowledge my role within this establishment and to humbly absorb at least a portion of the anger she has kept bottled up for so long. In the reading we heard from Levi, Dr. Opara writes that in order to do better, neocolonizers like me need to dismantle structures that we inherited and maintain. I'll offer a brief description of some of these structures from the point of view of someone who has spent too many years being educated and then working within this problematic system. They include objectification, an emphasis on medical conditions at the expense of attention to the people suffering from them. Elitism, the idea that doctors' extensive education confers upon us the right to tell other people what to do. You can see this captured in the vocabulary of doctor's orders. Classism, that places various medical roles into rigid hierarchies with the patient at or near the bottom. The moral bankruptcy of our nation's medical education was called out in the satirical novel, The House of God. Author and psychiatrist Sam Shem drew the title of the book from a text describing the conquest of Mexico. Back to colonialism. Add to this the dynamics of third-party payment systems in which patients can find themselves on the sidelines as their medical providers negotiate with insurance companies, etc. And crucially, Given that these are predominantly white institutions governed by men, there is racism, sexism, ableism, and more. For a comprehensive history of the oppressiveness of my particular profession, I invite you to watch a recorded presentation, not today, but maybe at, at some time of your choosing, given by two young people from Brown University. One of them, shown on the slide, broadcast from inside a prison representative of what is now the predominant institutional setting for the mentally ill. Given all of this, where can such a personal decolonization process begin? Sam Shem, who continues to speak out on this issue, 
cites the healing power of a good connection. An echo of ethical culture's philosophy of relationship building, perhaps. Personally, I also found, find myself drawing upon the concept of centering the vulnerable. Imagine, what if our entire medical establishment revolved around patients and their priorities? It was in this spirit that I invited Rachel Callum Whitman to join me in a dialogue on this topic. Some of you may recall that Rachel spoke at West several years ago about living with bipolar disorder. Rachel couldn't be here in person, but last weekend, she and I recorded a conversation, which I'm pleased to share with you now. Hello. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And is it okay if I call you Rachel? That would be lovely. And I like that you were cool with me saying John, because usually when I have conversations with psychiatrists in the past, they have insisted that I call them doctor. So this is a great introduction to how maybe you have better conversations when there isn't a looming power dynamic over yourself. So yeah, well, right. Well, it, it certainly is a thing, isn't it? And I do gently invite my clients to call me by my first name if they feel comfortable. Sometimes they don't. It, it feels strange to them. And so if they do that, then I will refer to them to whatever title they prefer. So I'm wondering, where should we start? I, I, I'm so glad, first of all, that you agreed to my invitation um, to come back to speak um, yeah. once again. I and love I'm, the platform. And I'm really excited to be here. You know what I was thinking? So I am a disability studies professor. It's um, the concentration that speaks to me personally and professionally. And one of the things that I've learned through my work is to do an image description. So if somebody who is engaging with this content is blind or low vision, they know what we look like. So I thought I could start us off and then maybe you could provide an image description as well. I'd be happy to do that. Great. So... I am Rachel Callum Woman. Rachel Callum Whitman, I am a white woman. Right now I am wearing red glasses and a black t-shirt and I have curly brown hair. And I am sitting um, in front of three windows and you can peek outside into my yard and see the, the beautiful trees outside. Um, and I am a white man with uh, brown hair and a salt and pepper beard. Um, wiring glasses, and I am sitting in front of a light-colored wall and a uh, a very colorful quilt. Thanks for inviting me to do that. It's a good oh, practice. To so I remember very, very vividly um, your talk at West uh, three three years ago or so, and you spoke about living with bipolar disorder. And when I felt moved to talk about myself as a healthcare provider um, and what I hope to do and hope that I've been beginning to do, I thought of you and I thought it could be very helpful for, for our community to hear more specifically about your experiences interacting with the healthcare system yourself and that perhaps we might together in our conversations perhaps model a little bit of the kind of relatedness that you might like to see more in the world when you are engaging with mental health professionals and other healthcare providers. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's fantastic. When you approached me about this, one of the things that I thought was this really powerful part of this opportunity was to explore the fact that when it comes to psychiatric relationships, the past ones that I've had, there really is this pretty severe difference between who is in power and who is not. And the psychiatrist is the one who has the degree and acronyms after their name. And they're the one that you go to um, and they tell you what's wrong with you and how to fix you without getting to know you. And lead right off. Yeah. And, and I think just to kind of just go back and kind of center my experiences, yeah. I was um, 15 when I first started experiencing symptoms of bipolar disorder. And I saw my first psychiatrist when I was 17. And you're already coming from a place of, of an illness that you're still getting to know. And you feel so broken in those moments. And I remember seeing my first psychiatrist and he basically reinforced this model of, yes, you are broken and only I can fix you. And it created this really toxic pattern that really marked most of the relationships I've had with my psychiatrist, where it wasn't really about what I wanted and, and how I knew myself. It was really about following someone else's rules and making sure that I modified my behavior in a way that fit into their categorization of, okay, now you are healthy. You're not crazy. You're not symptomatic ignoring completely how I want to engage in the world and how I exist. And instead to kind of allow that part of myself um, to really dissipate under these expectations of what's considered appropriate behavior. And as someone in, with a mental illness, someone telling you how to behave um, and saying that you're doing it incorrectly really just undermines your your humanness and your identity to make sure i i heard you correctly when you first were in, encountering a psychiatrist you were you were given a norm and described how you deviated from it yeah and the norm was for the psychiatrist to lay out for you exactly um, and it was and it was so interesting and that's why like when we started talking you're like yeah i'm john when I met my first psychiatrist, he was insistent that I call him doctor. And I remember the physical being in that room and this feeling, I have the psychiatrist and he's actually sitting in this big elevated leather chair. My mom and I are sitting in these little wicker chairs, basically looking up at him as he is really just spending 15 minutes telling my mom she is bipolar one. Telling your mother. Telling my mother, completely ignoring me, telling my mom, she's bipolar one. These are the meds she needs to take. You need to make sure she takes the meds. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even a part of the conversation. And my mom was so desperate for help that she took this, his kind of decree of like, I'm right, do what I say as hope. And so instead of me this being a strong involved, person is going to make it better. For yeah. Yeah. This guy is going to fix me mm -hmm. versus, hey, maybe Rachel isn't broken. Mm -hmm. Maybe she needs help. And to find hope, that means we work with her mm -hmm. and don't tell her what's best for her. Right. 
to circle back. Yeah. Um, thanks for. I'm not sure I should say thank you. This image, this image of even all all of the all of the the body language, the way the room is set up. Yeah. Um, it puts the provider on on a throne. What you know, what 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 I was reflecting back to you was this idea that there is there is wellness for the doctor to define and and then say to you have you gotten there yet um i will say that that one of the things and and this may grow out of the fact that i was a mental health patient myself before i became a clinician before i got out of medical school i try to center distress that mm-hmm. i will try to find out you know what what brings you here and and what do you hope to gain from this appointment and then serve your needs at the center but you didn't experience that no i i didn't and it was one of these things and i know you know we live in a society where health insurance dictates that you see your doctor for 15 minutes and you pay your copay and they give you a prescription and you're even out for the your door. intake even for my yeah and i actually didn't know that until kind of having conversations with you about how intakes typically you know 45 minutes, an hour, and I just, yeah, and I remember my first experience was was 15 minutes in an office looking up at this man who did not know me and did not know my my mom, Mm -hmm. but really just was kind of like, yeah, I'm the doctor and I can just tell you what to do and you should absolutely believe me and follow me without question. I think the other thing... And it certainly does come with experience, but if I recall correctly, this was not a a youngin that you were seeing in terms of the in terms of the the doctor, right? This is not someone new to practice. Very, very well established. And it was funny because when we were looking for doctors, um, our you know my my parents were talking to our my PCP and pretty much everyone in the neighborhood. They're like this guy knows what he's doing. And so we come in with these expectations that this person is going to be this great model of of how to interact with the mental health care system. And it was completely devoid of compassion or any kind of attentiveness and responsiveness at all. I mean, I was coming in and my mom too, from, from trauma. Cookie cutter. Yeah, exactly. And it was this cookie cutter approach. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to, Look at the DSM and find your diagnosis and send you on your way. Yeah. The other thing I was going to comment on besides centering distress, that one of the things that I've learned, and I was going to try to let your doctor off the hook a little bit, but one of the things <laughs> I've learned over the years is that particularly with bipolar, there are only a couple of conditions like this. Mm-hmm. Bipolar is one of them, certainly, is that I know that people's experience with bipolar, and I don't just know this because I saw your mm-hmm. platform three years ago, is it is not exactly all distress, that mm-hmm. that there is something more than just distress to bipolar disorder. And so sometimes what I will check with someone about is, are there things about it that you don't want to lose and that we have to keep in mind as we begin putting together a treatment plan? And that didn't come up at all, did it? No, and I think that's such an important part. Bipolar disorder in particular, I'll speak from my experience, it can mimic identity very easily. And so when a doctor's perspective, like with my first psychiatrist was just like, you're broken, that created this kind of like emotional fallout of like, wait, 
what parts of me are broken? Is this an illness? Is all of me kind of fracturing? Am I trying to cure an illness or cure myself? And I think one of the most damaging aspects was I never got any answers to any of that. When I would have follow-up appointments, usually he would insist that I would bring my mom. I was 17 at the time, but he insisted that I bring my mom. He would talk more to my mom than myself. And it was really one of these things where I never again got information about this is what bipolar means. These are, you know, some of the symptoms that people experience. It's not just you. This is something that, you know, is real and present in a lot of people's lives and they can learn to live with it. And my interactions with my psychiatrist were basically like, the only way you're going to live with this is to do exactly as I say. And he completely erased the fact that bipolar disorder impacts everybody in different ways, especially in terms of like different medication needs and different kinds of supports. And so I was put on medication for years that did more harm than good. And it was because no one listened. I'm sad to say that I have a, I have a bipolar client who's in the hospital right now. Mm, Yeah. And, um, I, I tried to talk with her Thursday night. Um, but by the time I called her, the police had already been called on her twice. Mm. And, and, and in her state, she was unable to really see me as different from the rest of the system. And it makes me so sad to hear you're describing this power relationship that is not as different from interactions with law enforcement as I'd like. Yeah. And um, fortunately, I can say that um, after I kind of had had given up hope of being able to stop her from being taken in in handcuffs, she actually called 911 herself and got Mm -hmm. voluntarily admitted. So I'm hoping she'll have a better experience and and I'll be seeing her back in the outpatient setting very, very soon. So I'm really struck by your description of of the power, the power dynamic. Um, And you mentioned something to me, if we could return back to the name, the the, the title issue. Yeah. Um, Could you could you remind me of what happened after you got your own doctorate? So I got my own doctorate. Uh And all of a sudden, I'm running around and I'm like a doctor. And it was, you know, a title that I was very proud of what I what I had accomplished. And when I first started teaching five years ago, I went into the classroom and I was told by, you know, my academic friends, like you go in there, you're the doctor. And they say, Dr. Rach, Dr. Whitman, Dr. Callum Whitman, mm-hmm. any kind of uh, mix of that. And I remember standing in front of my classroom and I was going to sit, introduce myself. I'm Dr. Rachel. Mm. And I was like, why? Like, why do I feel this need that I've like, you know, these young minds are looking up at me to learn from Mm -hmm. me. Why do I have to take myself into a separate space from them? I want to learn from them. They're going to learn from me. So kind of realizing that those kind of titles can actually be oppressive and isolating from people. So the fact that it's like, hey, we're all here, we're all learning, uh-huh. I think is beneficial in a lot of different environments. And but your doctor did insist on using his having you call him by doctor, but call you Rachel, but didn't you try to even the even the score? <laughs> And I remember that experience as well when I saw this clinician and I'd already been like, okay, my students, they're going to call me whatever I want. 
And I remember going to my psychiatrist at the time and I earned my doctorate. I was so proud of myself. And he always was like, you have to call me doctor this. And I was like, I know you can call me doctor because I just got my degree. And I remember this, this man looking at me and he kind of rolled his eyes and he was like, oh, he didn't. Yeah. And he's like, I'm really the doctor in this scenario. And again, it was this idea of creating this, this punitive relationship where he told me again, where I was like misbehaving. And again, not unique mm -hmm. to that psychiatrist. I mean, yeah. psychiatry should be about healing and hope and not punitive. And so right. these experiences, yeah, people pull and rank to make you feel less than, to make them make it feel like you have to do exactly as they say, that really disrupts your sense of self and your journey to become a healthier, a more well person. So I'm wondering, there's so much we could talk about, but I'm wondering, you know, before we finish uh, um, our uh, uh, conversation, if you might share a few a few words of wisdom um, for clinicians like myself about what what you'd like to see, what you do look for. So I think now as I've kind of have a better sense of myself and what I need, and as I learn from other people who have similar experiences kind of engaging with psychiatry, cultural humility is so important. We talk about cultural competence a lot, which of course is, has a huge role. But cultural humility is so vital, especially as we're starting to recognize and understand people's intersectional identities. Yeah. And so cultural humility being like, you know, I'm coming to a clinician who has expertise, the training to help, you know, that's their background. But what's my background? I'm not just coming as a patient into my clinician's office. I'm a white woman, I'm a fat woman, I identify as queer. And so I'm bringing all of this into my psychiatrist's office, into any doctor's office. And so my care needs to be responsive of those aspects of my identity that are so important to me. And you're only going to understand me if you listen and learn from me. And so cultural yeah, the humility, this demand really of being like, you know what, I see you as a whole person. I don't understand you yet, but I want to, and I'm going to learn from you. That is the you. best way to make sure you get the care that you deserve. I think that sounds like a wonderful way to wrap up this part of our platform <laughs> this morning. Thank you so much for bringing your wisdom and your humanity and your experiences. I, and I really appreciate this. We've talked a bit about this too, how, again, as somebody who has been in the system in a variety of different ways, these kinds of conversations are so therapeutic to be able to reclaim that sense of really of personhood in a field where too often there are these power dynamics and rigid expectations about what it means to be a doctor and what it means to be a patient. And so I hope everybody who's watching this platform can take time to really understand how they fit into this and how we can all be allies to support each other. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, John. It was lovely chatting with you. Such a gift.
I'd like to close by sharing some ideas for all of us as we navigate the healthcare system and try to ensure that we receive the care we need. First, I'd like to suggest that for straightforward medical needs, if you have a choice of clinicians, I just suggest that you prioritize attentiveness, willingness to answer questions, and general rapport. Sadly, physician training and physician culture may be more of a hindrance than a help in those areas. I suggest you look for someone willing to acknowledge, acknowledge a lack of knowledge about some things and be willing to research them for you. A good provider won't roll their eyes when you share with them what you read about your condition on the internet. <laughs> Second, I suggest being attentive to economics. Fee-for-service arrangements pose a risk of overtreatment. While capitation, a one-time annual enrollment fee, poses a risk of undertreatment. Watch out for hidden out-of-pocket costs. Third, if you feel safe doing so, try to muster the courage to ask follow-up questions rather than accepting conclusions and recommendations at face value. If the clinician says they don't have time, see if there is somebody else on the staff who can help. If you're not the assertive type, see if you can bring along someone who is. My number is in the West directory. Fourth, if you don't feel you can trust your provider, try to find a new one. Rachel and I have compiled some resources for people in more acute need. Finally, I'd like to say, let's all work together to decolonize our healthcare system. I've reserved a Zoom room today, a Zoom room today at 1.30 to give people an opportunity to continue the conversation if you all would like. Thank you. Thank you so much, John and Rachel. Rachel also shared these words from Esme Weijun Wang, the collected schizophrenia's essays, as a reminder. After all, it is easy to forget that the, the psychiatric diagnoses are human constructions and not handed down from an all-knowing God on stone tablets. To have schizophrenia is to fit an assembly assemblage of symptoms, which are listed in a purple book made by humans. So a key message for those of us in the audience who are not clinicians is to value our voices, the validity of our distress, and our right to be at the center of our medical care. After some music, we'll have community sharing time, when you can write into the chat or speak into the microphone about what resonated with you in this platform. In this time in between, you may prepare by reflecting on a personal experience or an activity at West that illustrates the values we are uplifting today. As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let us experience the beauty of the musical response from Dar Williams.
But go ahead, push your luck, find out how much love the world can hold. Once upon a time, I had control and reined my soul in tight. Well, the whole truth is like the story of a wave unfurled. But I held the evil of the world, so I stopped the tide, froze it up from inside, and it fell like a winter machine that you go through and then. Catch your breath and winter starts again, and everyone else is spring bound. And when I chose to live, there was no joy, it's just the line I crossed. I wasn't worth the pain my death would cost, so I was not lost or found. And if I was to sleep, I knew my family had more truth to tell. And so I traveled down a whispering well to know myself through them. But growing up, my mom had a room full of books and hid away in there. Her father. What it was for, but now I'm sleeping fine. Sometimes the truth is like a second chance. I am the daughter of a great romance, and they are the children of the war. The sun rose with so many colors it nearly broke my heart. It worked me over like a work of art, and I was a part of all that. So go ahead, push your luck. Say what it is you gotta say to me. Push on into that mystery, and it'll push right back. And there are worse things than that, 'cause for every price and every penance that I could think of, it's better to have fallen in love than never to have fallen at all. 'Cause when you
This is the time when we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform or what resonates in our own lives. For our online participants, I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or in the comments if you're watching the recording later. I'll start with Zoom comments. We'll accept some comments at their microphone from in-person attendees in the middle and then return, return to our Zoom participants at the end. Roberta Geyer says, a very informative platform. I generally have a critical view of the medical profession. May have read too much Moliere's as a student. Recently, my PCP retired and the practice is a mess. Your platform makes me feel there is, there is super to find a new doc. Thanks. Marty Kaufman says, to everyone involved, Great job pulling off this experience. The live remote recording transitions were seamless and very additive. Thank you, tech team, and thank you, John. I'm sure it's hard work making it look easy, especially with several moving pieces. Judy Ohm says, this was amazing. Thank you, Rachel and John. So much to think about. Delightful from Judy and Randy. Thank you all for your comments and questions. Let's turn to commenters in the hall. Please line up with plenty of personal space at the stationary microphone. Take off your mask at your personal comfort. State your name and pronouns. Go ahead. My name is Susan Runner. My pronouns are she and her. I never speak it less, so I'm a little nervous. But I do remember when I was a, and it still makes me a little nervous, when I was a first-year resident at Cook County Hospital in oral and maxillofacial surgery, it was a community hospital that had the worst of the worst cases. And there was a woman who had been hit in the face with a golf club. And I was on rounds with my other residents. I was the only female. And when we had finished examining her, the patient came up to me and said, what, what did they say? What's wrong? And the chief resident berated, berated me for talking to her and said, she's just a subhuman piece of, and let's go. Thank you for your addition to the sharing. I will now return to Zoom to see what else has been added. Walter Ewing says, even the nicest, most well-intentioned intentioned of my psychiatrists were clearly trained by a system that told them they had to act like the giver of answers if they wanted to be effective. Karen Storm says, wonderful platform. I'm definitely going to use what I learned today. You helped me trust my instincts about my new doctor. 
Rajesh says, very interesting. Thank you, John and Rachel. When talking about decolonization, I want to direct attention to the colonialism in the mind that is carried by the colonized and the extra respect that male white doctors are accorded. The culture of inordinate respect for expertise that is not grounded in cultural sensitivity and the understanding of systems of culture. Maggie Barris says, most psychiatrists do med management, not therapy. Just like surgeons will always say surgery will help. Go ahead when you're ready. Hi, I'm Abby Dakin. Um, thanks for letting me come back up out of order. I just want to share, so I'm the one who finds images for the slides. And I want to mention that for the title slide, which ended up being a, a white male doctor looking up at a black child sticking her tongue out, I can't tell you how hard it was to find that image. I put in a search for patient, doctor looking up at patient. That was my search term. There were no pictures that met that search. They gave me patient looking up at doctor. I did eventually find it, of course, and I think, I can't remember what I, my, I had to use a different search term because that search term did not bring up any pictures, which I think goes to show how, how ingrained it is. Thank you all to who, thank you all who shared their thoughts and attention. Just as we share our perspectives in this community, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, we split all undesignated gifts in the Sunday collection between our operating budget and a fund dedicated to justice and compassion. This month, the fund we're sharing half of the offering with is family and friends of incarcerated people. FFOIP is an organization whose primary mission is to foster community support that effectively meets the needs of today's at-risk children and families of those incarcerated. It operates solely to promote charity, literacy, public safety, and to avoid intergenerational incarceration. FFOIP serves DC area children of the incarcerated and at-risk youth by engaging them in social, cultural, and youth development activities through various projects, programs, and events. They believe in the concept that it takes a village to raise a child. Let's all take a moment to prepare to respond to the invitation to generosity. For those who are able to respond, there are a variety of ways to give. If you are someone who gives by text, the number for that is 202-335-1885, as you can see on the slide. Another option is to go online to the donate button on the West's website, ethicalsociety.org. You can place cash or check in the basket at the back of the hall on your way out, and you can always send a check by mail. Thank you for your generosity. We will now receive gifts of music.
Thank you so much to the many people who helped create this morning's time together. Thank you to our staff, including Ndara Miles, Robin Kravitz, Maceo Thomas, Tom Hutton, and our new senior leader, Casey Stack. Thank you to our speakers, John Dakin and Rachel Callum Whitman. Thank you to our interim music coordinator, Leah Morris, and our many guest musicians, including Garrett O'Donnell, Ellen Ryan, Nicole Malik, Dar Williams, Asher Falero, and Lucia and Jacob, whom we'll be singing along with in a few moments. Thanks also to John and Abby Dakin, who created our slides. Thank you to our stage manager, Kate Lang, our Zoom chat usher, Trang Duong, and tech team members, John Lika, John Pfeiffer. Thank you to the in-person greeters, Susan Runner and Alex Abbott, and to Adam Goldberg, who will host the West Coffee Hour after platform. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us in our social hall in person and around the our social hour in person and around the foyer and on the patio. Our virtual coffee hour on Zoom. And if you are new to Wes, there will be a special breakout group from noon to 12.30 for our newcomers Q&A. Join membership coordinator Maceo Thomas for this informal gathering to learn a little bit about who we are and what we do here and to get your questions answered. As a continuation of today's platform topic, there will be a Zoom gathering from 1.30 p.m. today. Have you had trouble experience with healthcare providers or the healthcare system? Would you like to talk about your experiences, commiserate with others, and or discuss about what might be done about it. John Dakin will open the Zoom room as an, un, as an unstructured space for further conversation. Thanks also to those who are leading and supporting our work in the weeks to come. You can find information about opportunities to connect in the Sunday links or news and notes emails and on the calendar page on Wes's website. I want to remind everyone that the strength of our Sunday Ethical Education for Kids, or SEEK, offerings next year will be dependent on volunteers. If you're interested in assisting to make SEEK flourish, please email Indara at indaram at ethicalsociety.org. Perry Bider, which I will welcome to come up, has a special announcement about Wes's chorus. Thanks, Levi. Um, just want to tell everyone here and everyone listening here in, you know, broad sense that the chorus is ending its summer break so that we can begin preparing for opening Sunday, which this year will be on September 18th. Uh, the chorus is open to everyone. If you have ever enjoyed singing in the shower, in the car, along with the song of the month, in elementary school choir, please talk to me. Uh, if you don't know that you are ready to jump in with both feet, I have a couple ideas about how you can get your toes in the water. Um, what else did I wanna say? I don't know. Um, please talk to me. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to contribute to the Sunday platform experience. Uh, and we would love to 
uh, have you join us. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Uh, yeah, that was a good thing for me to mention. Rehearsals will begin on Wednesday. This Wednesday, we rehearse here in the main hall from 7.30 to 9. And for now, we are uh, rehearsing with masks on. Thanks. Thank you, Perry. We hope you will join us again next Sunday. It will be the inaugural platform address by our new senior leader, Casey Slack. And I'm sure many of you will want to participate in this historic day. To attend platform in person, remember that you need to RSVP at tiny.cc slash platform reservation. You must bring your vaccination card or a picture of it, or you can tune in by Zoom as we continue with hybrid platforms for the foreseeable future. For now, let me thank you all for being part of Platform today and invite you to join in our closing song, Love is the Water. Hello, Wes. Leah here with Lucia and Jacob, who is freshly 13. Very yep. freshly. And we're going to sing Pat Wichter's Love is the Water That Wears Down the Rock. We're going to add some choreography to it, too, just to get in our bodies. So we hope that you'll sing and move with us. And now you're having a wonderful summer. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is a power that won't be stopped. Love is the water that wears down the rock. You say your heart's been turned to stone. You say you want to be left alone. You say love only made you weep and moan. But let me tell you something that you know in your bones. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is a power that won't be stopped. Love is the water that wears down the rock. You say your soul feels like a dry river bed. Stop waiting for the water long ago, you say. You better pray all night for the rain instead. Love comes like a tidal wave over your head. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is a power that won't be stopped. Love is the water that wears down the rock. You say waiting for love takes too long. It dulls a sharp mind, weakens a strong will. You may be but you may be wrong Cause love can make a mountain come tumbling down Love is the water that wears down the rock Love is the water that wears down the rock It's a power Love is a power that won't be stopped Love is the water that wears down the rock a river washes over every soul in the land. Put your feet in the gravel, get some mud in your hands. Cause nothing can stand again.
Yes, the love's command. Every boulder turns into a plane. And one more time. Love is the water that wears down the rock. Love is the water that wears down the rock. It's power. Love is the power that won't be stopped. I'm telling you, love is the water that wears down the rock. We finish. Love is the water that wears down the Thank you for joining me in that song. A few brief reminders before we leave. If you are new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. To reach virtual coffee hour, point your browser to tiny.cc slash westcoffeehour. And now I invite you to join me in our closing words for the month. Let us go out into the week ahead with compassion, understanding, and commitment, inspiring and being inspired to ethical living in our quest for a better world. Again, thank you all for joining today's platform. We look forward to connecting with you again.